Hello, and welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. I'm Samantha Davidson, the U.S. OCO leader at Mercer, and I'll be your host for today's episode, focusing on our 2023 market outlook. Joining me are Rupert Watson, head of asset allocation in Europe, and Anthony Brown, director of capital markets in the U.S. at Mercer. We are really going to focus on three areas today, the macro, the risk of recession, and the markets, where to invest both in the public and private asset space. So kicking off with the macro, the global economy is slowing, but perhaps not as severely as the consensus views might have suggested a few months ago. We are in various states of recession across the globe, and particularly if energy prices remain high and inflation doesn't work first course over the next few quarters, we may see a change in trajectory. So Anthony, we'll start off with you. You have many economies around the world, and particularly in the U.S., that have overheated to a strong response to strong demand, constrained supply chains, massive stimulus around the pandemic. So what do you see the central banks doing to really address this? I think we can all assume that they've been too late, but have they done enough? Well, yes, Samantha, I mean, I think with the benefit of hindsight, central banks were too late, but they have come a long way over the last six months. I mean, the market is pricing the Fed to, to take the overnight rate to 5% by the middle of next year, which I think we we would have, it would have been hard to imagine that happening at the start of this year. On whether it will be enough, I mean, the, the Fed can't fix supply problems, but some of those uh, supply problems have been corrected over the course of the year. Um, but the Fed has tightened financial conditions a lot, and that will eventually impact demand. Uh, based on yields on inflation-protected bonds, real yields have gone from negative 1% at the start of the year to, to positive 1.5%, which is a massive shift. And we're really just beginning to see the impacts of this. Um, and the most obvious place we're seeing an impact from this is with housing right now. But ultimately, it's hard to say whether it's enough because there is such a long lag in monetary policy. My hunch is that the Fed has done enough to bring inflation back down, but um, but yeah, it's just really, really hard to say at this point because there is such a long lag. And Rupert, now shifting over to you, what's your take on the direction of the European economies? How do the energy cost and the protracted Russian-Ukraine conflict figure into your view? Um, well, the jump in energy costs is a pretty central part of um, forming the outlook. We've seen huge jumps in gas prices, uh, and as a result of that, electricity prices. And those in those those jumps have uh, have already caused much of Europe to head into recession. Uh, in the UK, not only have we had the energy price rises, we've also had significant monetary policy increases uh, and significant fiscal tightening as well. And as a result of that, the UK probably entered recession uh, at the start of the third quarter this year, with a recession likely to last most of next year, with growth falling peak to trough of 2-3%, something like that, which one might describe as a moderate-sized recession. Uh, in the eurozone, the eurozone has not overheated to the same extent uh, as the US, but it is facing this massive energy shock. And this energy shock has probably pushed the eurozone into recession in the fourth quarter this year, but will last for two or three quarters. But I think the eurozone should be growing by the end of next year, as long as we don't see another spike higher uh, in, in energy costs. So the recession we'll be seeing in the eurozone will be a pretty mild one, uh, with some individual countries in the eurozone uh, not contracting at all. 
So it's a pretty sort of um, poor outlook going forward. Um, but I don't think we're looking at a, a sort of, you know, a, you know, a massively deep recession, not a rerun of the great financial crisis or a rerun of the of the COVID lockdowns. So, Rupert, you were just talking about energy prices, and let's stay really on this topic because the real topic of focus that we're all talking about is inflation. But there are some signs that some of the inflation drivers may not be what they used to be. Can you talk about where you're seeing the signs with respect to the trajectory of inflation um, and what you're thinking about the future? Well, um, I suppose when thinking about inflation, one can split it up into its different drivers. And we've been thinking about what we refer to as temporary drivers of inflation relative to more permanent ones. By temporary, we mean things that might un- that should unwind or at least stabilize. So a classic example of that is commodity prices, where earlier in the year, uh, 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 oil prices were up 50% year on year. Uh, and there was no, there's no chance them continuing to go up 50% year on year. Um, and indeed, we've seen them fall uh, of, of, of late. Um, we also saw big supply side um, uh, things happening. We saw big jump in used car prices. The cost of shipping stuff from Shanghai to LA went up many, many fold. And all of those are beginning to unwind, uh, which should push some parts of the inflation complex uh, lower and possibly even into negative territory. The bit that's a bit more worrying and may persist for a bit longer uh, is what's happening on the wage growth side of things. Because for many companies, wage growth is by far the most important and largest cost. And if wage growth is high, then companies will typically seek to charge their clients more uh, to protect their margins. Uh, And because of the tight state of the labor market, very low unemployment, lots of uh, spare jobs out there, lots of vacancies, is the labour market pretty much under any scenario is going to stay tight um, for another 12 months uh, at least. And as a result of that, wage growth is unlikely to decline sharply. And I think that it's the wage growth side of things and whether wage growth loosens materially uh, over the next year or two will determine whether inflation um, gets back to target by the end of next year uh, or more likely perhaps into 2024. I think like Anthony, I'm on the more optimistic side of things. I think inflation will move back to target um, over the next couple of years. Um, but I think the risk to that are it definitely staying staying more elevated. Uh, and if that happened, then the Fed would need to um, um, either push higher uh, or stay somewhere near 5% for longer. Anthony, have I correctly? I think that I'm right. And that's your view. Is that, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah, that is my view that that the, the the base case view that inflation comes back down is reasonable but yeah the uh, but i mean i think there there are risks on both sides of that so what do you think would cause inflation to go sort of notably lower well i mean i think what could cause inflation to lower is that if it winds up that uh the fed has has tightened too much or will tighten too much and that that the economy simply can't handle real interest rates of one and a half percent given the the high debt loads around the world and so that could drive us back into the post-GFC type environment with with uh, with yeah, the high debt driving uh, more disinflationary trends. So actually, just talking about turning a bit from inflation to really back to global growth and 
we've highlighted that you know the UK has entered recession. The eurozone has as well. We are uh, projecting the US uh, to be in a similar trajectory sometime next year. But but one area we haven't spent much time on is really talking about China, which of course has been a global growth driver, and some of the headlines that we've all been closely watching, particularly around the protests uh, over the last few days. Anthony, how do you think China figures into the calculus and the global growth situation? Well, I was saying just before getting on to China, and just to, to sort of finish off in the US, we are expecting the US to do a bit better than, than European economies. Uh, and, and so there may not be a recession in the US, uh, although if there is, we would expect it to be a pretty mild one. Um, but moving on to China, I mean, China is at the completely different stage of its economic cycle um, to most other places. As we said earlier, the US has overheated. And therefore, because it's gone through a period of strong growth, it has to go through a period of weak growth. Uh, In the case of China, it's been through a period of weak growth because of lockdowns. And therefore, at some point, uh, it has to go through a period um, of strong growth. Now, exactly what's going to happen uh, over the next few, well, I'd say next few weeks, next few days, next few weeks and next few months in relation to COVID lockdowns is exceptionally unclear because the Chinese authorities are both trying to stimulate growth, but also trying to uh, 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 control COVID. And I think those two are pretty difficult to con- you know, to manage at the same time. But at some point, and certainly in 2023, it's at some point, uh, we expect to see a sort of, you know, proper tight reopening of the, the Chinese economy, uh, which should lead to a decent pickup in growth um, starting whenever the reopening happens. In terms of when exactly that is, um, I'm not very sure. And just one thing I might interject there is that, I guess, from a, from the rest of the world's perspective, the silver lining to the lockdowns in China has been has reduced uh, commodity demand. I mean, the I think China overall has still done a pretty good hit, job of with their manufacturing exports. Um, but then the lack of domestic demand has reduced some of the, the commodity demand, which has eased <laughs> inflationary pressures. So if China does do a full reopening, that's a potential risk is that it starts to drive uh, commodity prices higher again, but, but we'll have to see how that transpires over the course. I mean, of I, can, I completely agree with that. I, I would say that's a sort of, you know, the, the, there is a story that uh, the, you know, commodity prices pick up in the second half of next year. Uh, and then up the Fed, having been at 5% for a while, um, has to rehike. And I think that that's definitely a a risk because you know all prices are you know fairly low at the moment, and as you say, when when that uh, when 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 Chinese commodity demand picks up, commodities might might go up a lot. So we t- before we turn to the markets and and what this all means on where to invest, anything that either of you would like to add? Uh, Anthony, what are you going to go for? <laughs> Well, I, mean, I guess just overall, I mean, just briefly on the U.S. economy, I, mean, I, I agree with Rupert's view that I mean, it's not not a done deal that the U.S. has a recession. But if we do have a recession, it looks like it will be pretty mild because U.S. household finances are pretty strong as a result of the stimulus and because income is so strong. Um, I guess the risk to that is that it, it could be that household demand stays too strong as rates uh, keep on rising, which would keep uh, inflation, which could keep inflation high and may, mean the Fed would have to tighten even more. 
that's a, I see that as one downside risk of of growth being yeah remaining too strong over the course of the next year. And I would say an, ob- an observation rather than a risk is that most of the times in history when the Fed has tightened aggressively, it's caused some kind of accident uh, in economies and markets. Um, and we're sort of largely not forecasting it this time, but history would suggest that something usually happens. Um, so, but you know, we need to show a bit of humility. I, th- I think we always do. <laughs> Perfect. Well, why don't we why don't we turn a bit to the markets? So, you know, if you look back at 2022, it's been heck of a year. Both developed and emerging markets have declined for most of the year, with developed markets down about 25 percent uh, through uh, September, as well as emerging markets down about 27 percent. Um, on top of that, government bonds have also declined, uh, where you've really had the first global bear market in 70 years, um, and both investment grade and high yield bond. Yields have increased over the years so that total returns have been negative 17 and 16% respectively. So with that, investors have certainly been uh, hoping to find opportunity. And at this point, many investors are actually now underweight global equities. So um, Anthony, looking at you, you know, everyone is quite fearful about the future, but I think we've also highlighted a few opportunities of bright spots. Uh, do you think this is an in- attractive entry point for global equities? Well, I mean, certainly equity valuations look much better today than they did at the start of the year. Um, the issue is that all of this correction in equities we've seen this year is because of the rise in interest rates. Uh, in fact, based on uh, the rise in interest rates alone, I mean, you could argue that equity should have fallen even more. Um, it, there does not appear to be much of a fear premium built into equity valuations at this point. Um, so that kind of, that makes us a bit more cautious. Um, looking out over the intermediate to longer term, I mean, I think you can argue the, the expect returns on bonds has improved by a lot more than the expect return on equities. Now we still expect equities to, to outperform over the long term, but that gap has narrowed this year. Um, and so probably at the margin, we'd be looking for some more opportunities in fixed income. And I know this is an area that, that, that Rupert's been looking at uh, a lot uh, in, in some of these shorter-term fixed-income opportunities. Yeah, the one thing I would 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 add to that on equities is that in past periods of economic stress um, and sort of well market turmoil, great financial crisis, say, and COVID crisis, is equities had fooled a long way. Um, and valuations were, were were pretty cheap. And us and other investors were saying, well, at some point, uh, if it turns out the economy is going to turn, um, then equities could fly because we'll get economic growth and the Fed had cut rates to, to, to zero. As we look forward from here, is there a zero chance of the Fed cutting rates to zero? Um, certainly in any reasonable near-term um, uh, horizon. And therefore, the best we can look forward to is a stabilization at growth at a lowish level, inflation coming down, and the Fed no, you know, no longer no longer hiking rates, and perhaps on a two-year via possibly cutting rates. Um, and in that sort of environment, it's difficult to see um, equity absolutely flying. Um, and therefore, I think in a sort of in a base case, equity, do, they do okay. 
um, Fed not having to tighten any further once they get to, you know, say 5%, uh, I think will be pretty good for equities. But then perhaps the realisation, as Anthony just spoken about, of a prolonged period of pretty rotten uh, um, earnings per share growth uh, means that equities um, they do okay, but they don't do you know do spectacularly well. And if we're wrong and that inflation remains higher for longer, uh, then I think equities are vulnerable. Which is why I think that credit assets generally are looking more attractive, because for the first time in you know fifteen years or so, you can get a return on bonds. You can pick up high quality investment grade credit um, for five percent or more. It was six percent not that long ago. Uh, you can get eight nine percent on on high yield. These are quite attractive returns, um, and certainly you know much higher bar than we've seen for a long time uh, for equities to beat. Um, so overall, I think you, you know I think credit looking more attractive than equities. Equities should be supported if we're right on uh, on inflation becoming contained, um, but uh, certainly more 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 certainly more defence in uh, a high quality. Uh, or indeed investment grade uh, fixed income, or indeed high yield, sorry, high yield or investment grade. So, you know, one area we haven't actually touched on, you know, with regards to respect to equities and, and credit is really focusing on real assets. Given our inflation environment, that's a real top of mind topic right now. Um, Anthony, let's turn to you. Where do you see opportunities in real assets? Are they protecting investors? How should we be thinking about this? Well, I mean, on the issue of whether they're protecting investors, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, classically, uh, we we do expect some of these real asset um, asset classes to perform well in in a inflationary, longer term inflationary environment because they they tend to be able to uh, pass along higher inflation. Um, so, thinking about real estate, where rents go up over time, infrastructure. Um, yeah, yeah. The a lot of times built into the contracts are, are uh, inflation escalators. The issue with these assets, though, is that they're still sensitive to the discount rate. They're sensitive to higher interest rates, and that's why they might prove less effective, at least over the short term. Capitalization rates need to increase to account for the higher cost of debt and just simply the returns you can earn on competing assets now. So at least over the short term, I mean, we, we expect to see infrastructure and real, asset and real estate come under pressure because uh, of a higher rate environment. So that could that could swamp that cash flow impact, at least over the short term. Now, looking out over the longer term, over the next decade, I and mean, we would expect these assets to be more resilient. Um, over the shorter term, I mean, natural resource equities have been um, uh, have been a, a a good place to be to to, uh, to hedge against inflation. They've certainly done well this year because they they well for one thing they were cheap entering the year and then uh, they've benefited from um, higher commodity prices. And and so we still think that's a, a pretty attractive area. Valuations still aren't that expensive. Um, and, and, and so if we do see higher commodity demand from China, we would expect these stocks to benefit. And over the longer term, I mean, uh, natural resource equities are going to they're going to be producing the uh, the commodities we need to make the, the green energy transition. So there's going to be massive demand uh, for a lot of these, uh, the, say, the, some of the, the metals. And there's been an underinvestment in the area for a number of years. So we, natural resource equities, we like both over the short term and the longer term. And Anthony, you really alluded to this um, in your comments about real estate and infrastructure. But you know, if you think about the private markets, 
you know, the combination of the weakening economic conditions, the geopolitical risk, you know, it's been impacting the both public and private markets alike. And now, given that you've got investors who are navigating the denominator effect, but at the same time, you've got private investors who are continuing to pursue deals. So can you talk a minute more, Anthony, about the valuation trends, um, where you think they're going? Um, Are investors at this point being given a realistic view, or do you think that private investors are being too optimistic? Well, I guess we we really do have to separate out what's uh, the outlook for what's already invested and and versus the current marks and future investments. And I mean, I think we are going to see pretty significant markdowns on current investments just because there is a lag in them uh, reflecting on what's happening in the public markets. And that's especially the case with venture capital. I mean, if you look at some of the, a lot of the post-venture stocks, they're down uh, 60, 70%. Um, so I think we, we've, we've got a lot of pain to come in, in venture capital markets in particular. Um, but for new investments, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a different game. I mean, their, their new money will be going out at, 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 uh, at lower valuations. So that would argue for better returns in the future. Um, there's still a lot of capital chasing, I, I think opportunities, probably, especially in venture capital. Uh, but if we look at buyouts, I mean, buyouts tend to do well, uh, tend to do the best in, in uh, post-recession. So if we do get a recession next year, I mean, history would argue that it could be a good point to, be, uh, to having money in buyouts because they, they tend to take advantage of, uh, 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 of recessions. Fantastic. And before we... Uh, start to wrap up and turn away from opportunities. Rupert, anything you'd like to add on on where investors should be thinking? On what's I, I think follow follow labor market data. Um, I think labor market data is going to be critical um, on the one hand to the resilience of consumer spending, uh, also as a sign of corporate retrenchment, um, but also as a major driver um, of 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 inflation because with wage costs making up you know, two thirds or thereabouts uh, of total corporate costs. If wage growth is strong, businesses will put their prices up uh, and that's inflation. Um, And so I think the labor market is going to give us the answers to the big critical questions or the critical question of next year, uh, which is how far, how fast does inflation fall uh, and what does the Fed and other central banks do do about it? So I think it's the labor market data uh, that I'll be most closely watching next year. Well, thank you to both of you. With that, I think we'll wrap up. I'd like to thank both of you, Rupert Watson, Head of Asset Allocation in Europe, and Anthony Brown, Director of Capital Markets in the U.S., for joining me. You can find a link to this market outlook and the 2023 paper in the podcast description, and you can also find it on the Mercer Insight community. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Critical Thinking, Critical Issues, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to speak to someone at Mercer about any of the topics discussed on the program, please feel free to contact your local Mercer representative or send an email to ctci at mercer.com. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you soon. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax, or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. 
If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Merce's opinions.